Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Uh, We are in Genesis chapter 15. Um, We will look at how God has worked, um, how God and Abraham interact after the the blessing given by Melchizedek. We are a people of the word, and so we read the word together. We are a people of the table, and we'll talk about the table a little bit later. But those two things go together as God has revealed his plan of salvation through his word and also through the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate today. So read with me from Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we, uh, we turn toward your word today. We turn toward the word that makes us perfect. We turn toward the word that revives the soul. We turn toward your law, which we love. Open our hearts to you. Change our hearts so that our meditations and the words of our mouth might be pleasing to you because you are our God, our rock, and our redeemer. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. So following his victory over the four-nation coalition from the east, Abram was was greeted and blessed uh, by Melchizedek, the priest and king of the Most High God. Uh, Melchizedek blessed Abraham and, and God blessed Melchizedek through the tithe that Abraham gave him of the plunder that he took from those four nations. Abraham was also greeted by Bera, uh, king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom greeted Abraham with disdain and disrespect and 
we'll see as we approach Genesis 19 that God returns that cursing with cursing as He promised in Genesis chapter 12. God had promised to bless those who blessed Abraham and to curse those who cursed Abraham. And Abraham began to see these curses fulfilled. Ten years into the land, ten years into the promise, Abram is finally starting to see God work to bring about the promises. But there's a problem for Abram. And it's only the first, it's only the last of those promises that is being fulfilled. He was promised the land, but the Canaanites are still there. He was promised a child, but he remains childless. Abraham is confronted with the fact that God's timing oftentimes is different than ours. Not just oftentimes, most of the time. God is concerned with the timing that brings Him the most glory, while we are concerned with the timing that brings us, honestly, the least stress. So what do we do when the delay of God's promises brings us to a state of despair or spiritual depression? To answer that question, we're going to look at how Abram responded to God as he was confronted with the fact that God's timing was far different from his. So today we will look at the complaints of a godly man by looking at Abram's complaints, God's responses, and Abram's belief. First, the complaints of Abram. Now, it sounds odd to us to consider complaint as a genuine response to God's delay. When you and I think of complaint, what do we typically think of? Whining, griping, just, you know, my goodness. One of my biggest complaints is gravity. You know, there are times when I wish gravity would just stop working. It's usually in the kitchen when I'm cooking, trying to get something out of the cabinet or out of the drawer, or when I'm carrying that food from the counter to the table. Gravity always gets me. And I complain. I gripe and I whine. Is there anything I can do about gravity? Is there anything my complaints or my whining is going to do? Absolutely not. But that's not what complaint is in the Scripture. Complaint is, well, actually, let's answer what complaint is in reverse order here. What is complaint in the Bible? It's a type of legal term that deals with keeping of a promise. It's typically done in the context of one party's ability to keep that promise. It has its foundation in trust, and that trust is in a just and a righteous system that will enforce the keeping of the promise. First off, to see how this works out, to fill this out, I want us to look to whom does Abram complain? In verse 2 and in verse 8, Abram's statements start out with the very same words. But Abram said in verse 2, O sovereign Lord, and then dropping down to verse 8, but Abram said, O sovereign Lord. Abram goes to God with his complaint. And who is this God that Abram is addressing? It's the sovereign Lord. This is the, the kind of smushing together of, of two names of God that, that show forth his attribute as the creator, the one who is holy above and in control of all things, the creator God, the sovereign God. But also we have here the word Lord. Lord, as it is given to us here you look in your Bible there, it's probably written in all capital letters, even though the L is, is larger than the, the lowercase capital letters. I know that kind of sounds contradictory there. Um, in our calls to worship, every now and then you'll see that I put in all caps the word Lord on occasion. That is when the word there is used as a translation of that name of God that God gave to Moses. 
We would say Jehovah or Yahweh, that four letter word or uh, that is God's personal name that God uses when he's talking about his relationship with his people. And so God is or Abram is crying out to the creator, sustainer, controlling God who is in a relationship with him, who has reached into Abram's life, grabbed Abram, called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and set him on this path of promise that God has given to him. So Abram complains to God. He brings his complaints to the God, the sovereign God. And why does he bring him to God? It's because God has promised to do these things. And that is what the second aspect of Abram's complaint is. They are in the context of an unfulfilled promise. Look again at verses 2 and verse 8. What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? Down to verse 8. How can I know that I will gain possession of it or of the land? He's talking about the land that God has mentioned. Why does Abraham look at these two things? Well, Because as I mentioned before, at the beginning of chapter 12, God says this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Abram goes to God and says, why have you not fulfilled the promises that you gave me? And that's what we should think about when we think about complaints about unfulfilled promises by God. We have God's revelation of who he is and what he has promised to do in this world. But we live in a fallen and broken world. We live in a world that God is sovereign over and that God has reached down into relationship with us. And God has promised to give us blessing. God has promised to watch us, to guard us, to guide us. Psalm 91, we are under his wings and he promises to keep us from all pestilence. And yet we get sick, do we not? Who do we cry out to? Who do we typically cry out to? We typically go on Facebook and say, you know what? You know, this God person is just untrustworthy. He's horrible. He gave me cancer. How can I trust a God who gave me cancer? Where should we go with our complaints? It's the same place the authors of the Psalms of Lament went. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry out to God, my Savior, even though darkness is my only friend. When life in a broken world seems to break God's promises, we go to Him. We go to Him because He is the one who has promised us. We go to Him because He is the one who can be trusted. So how does God respond to Abram's complaint? God responds in regards to his promises as well. He repeats his promise of a great number of descendants with a visual lesson. The first one he says here, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eleazar of Damascus, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So he repeats his promise, but then he gives a visual lesson. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. We typically look at this and we say, you know what, you know, 
He sent Abram out there to give him a numbers lesson, a math lesson. He sent him out there and he said, count the stars. And so Abram looked up. Now, we have a lot of light pollution here. And so the number of stars that we can see him almost feels countable. But if you go out somewhere where there's not a lot of light pollution, you either have to go somewhere out west or into another country because America has a lot of light pollution. The stars just open up to a seemingly infinite number of stars and they're uncountable. And that's true that that's what God wanted Abram to do, but it's not the whole truth, if you will. Because what Abram wanted to see as well was, look at the stars. Have you ever just sat and looked at the stars? Have you considered that light years away, sometimes thousands, sometimes millions of light years away, there is atomic fusion and fission going on that provides light to the night sky? Processes that up until the last 60 or 70 years were unfathomable by the mind of man. And unreachable even today by humanity. And so part of the lesson for Abram was, look at the stars. Look at the heavens that declare the glory of God and consider that the God who created the heavens will be faithful to bring you a son. The God who could speak the stars into existence with his words. Is he not powerful enough to give you a child from your own body? So God responds with his glory and his power. But he also responds in the land with a repetition of the promise as well as a visual sign. Now the repetition of the promise comes with a couple caveats. God reminds Abram, hey, I've promised to give you a land, but something is going to happen. It's going to be about 400 to 430 years before it comes to fruition. Oh, and by the way, before your descendants actually possess the land, they're going to be kicked out of the land, almost in an exile type situation. And they're going to go to another land that's not going to treat them very well. In fact, they're going to make them slaves. And they're going to treat them really poorly. They're going to give them affliction. Oh, and your descendants in the midst of that will see the mighty power of God as he rescues them from that land and gives them the plunder of the Egyptians. An interesting thing is the word that is translated there, possessions in verse 14. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. It's the same word that God uses for plunder in the previous chapter when Abraham took the plunder from the four nation coalition. So they're going to be enslaved. They're going to be rescued by God's power. But Abram's not going to see these things happen. He's going to die with the promise incomplete, but he'll die in peace. His faithfulness brings peace. And Abraham and his descendants must must both exercise great patience as they await for the sin of the Amorites to be complete. The sin of the people groups living in Canaan to reach its fullness. And by the time Joshua gets there with the Exodus generation, the sins of the Amorites are horrific and horrendous. Child sacrifice is probably the best place to start. But God doesn't only reiterate his promise with the caveats. He also gives him another visual sign. And he tells Abram, he says, take these animals Now, the sacrificial system has not been set up yet, but for the Israelites who were under the law, under the law of the sacrificial system, they would have recognized these as sacrifice animals. God says, take these animals, cut them in half and lay them out 
on the ground. Now, why would he cut them in half? God says through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 34, 18, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. This was a means in the ancient Near East to ratify a covenant. You know, if we sign a contract today, there are there are uh, consequences for breaking a contract, are there not? You might be sued or you might owe somebody. Think about your cell phone contract. If you break it before two years are up, you owe a significant amount of money. It's kind of the same, the same idea here. If I was going into a covenant relationship with Bob, Bob and I would take an animal, we would cut it in half, and he and I would walk together in the middle of the animal. And the thing is, the, the, the saying is, the idea is that May what happened to the animal happen to me should I break the covenant? Should I break my promise to give Bob whatever I had promised to give? And so Abram lays out these animals and he, he protects them from the birds of the air, the, the carrion, the vultures, the birds of prey. And God puts them into a sleep and Abram sees these symbols of God's presence, the the fire pot and the pillar of smoke pass between the animals by himself. And what God is saying here says, if I don't bring about what I told you here is going to happen to your descendants, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Now, typically both of them would walk through, but God holds Abraham off to the side and he walks through on his own. And he says, if my covenant is ever broken, may this happen to me. So God responds to Abram's complaints with grace. He reminds Abram of the promises he gave him. He reminds Abram that he is the creator God who has the power to do whatever he says he will do. And he reminds Abram, he gives him this very visible sign that if these things do not come to pass, may I be ripped apart So how does Abram respond to God's reiteration of the promises? We're told in verse 6, in this pivotal verse that looks back to the first uh, five verses and also looks uh, uh, on through to verse 21 there, and that Paul grasps in so many places in his writing, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. First off, what does it mean to believe? What do we think about when we think of belief? Some kind of fairy tale thing that's off in the distance that has no no basis in reality, but we're going to believe it. We're going to have faith. We're going to pretend that it's real. No, this is a certainty. This is a trust. This is the evidence of things hoped for, the substance of things not seen, as the author of Hebrews says. Abram has seen God work mightily in his life thus far, in his military victories, in his protection, even in the midst of Abram's sin, in bringing him to the land. And so God makes these promises. He links them to the power of his creation and the trustworthiness of his promise. And Abram believes God. Doesn't believe in God. He believes God. He trusts God to do exactly what God said he would do. Now, it's not a perfect trust. We'll see that later on. Actually, we'll see that in our next chapter. But Abram trusted God and God credited it to him as righteousness. What does it mean to credit it to him? It's a legal term. It literally means to make it as though it was his own righteousness. In other words, Abram is a sinner, but God declares him legally righteous before God. 
And what does that word righteous mean? Righteousness has three aspects to it or three uh, views to it. The first is ethical. We're used to ethical righteousness. It's following the law. God has laid out what the law is. And you are righteous if you follow the law. It also has a forensic or a legal aspect to it. Righteousness is legal language for the Israelite. Everyone is equal before the law and no one is considered innocent unless they keep God's law or they follow God's standard. And finally, it's covenantal. It's relationship based. In other words, if you keep the, the laws and the rules of the covenant, if you maintain a right relationship with God, you are considered righteous. Now, we know that Abram breaks the law. We know that Abram violates covenant. We know that Abram, were he to stand in a court, would not be declared innocent because he has broken the law and broken the covenant. So how can God declare Abram righteous? See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they see, we're not told they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. See, the glory of this passage is that Abram was declared righteous, not because of what he did, but because of what his promised seed would do. Thanks be to God, he was not declared righteous because what he did, because in the very next chapter, we're going to see that he messes up again like he did in chapter 13. He's going to lie about Sarah again. He was declared because he believed in God. He was declared righteous because he believed in God. And the same is true for you and I. Jesus took our infirmities upon him. He took on flesh. He became as one under the law and kept that law perfectly. He was righteous according to the law, according to the covenant, and according to the court of God. Not according to human law, but according to God's law. He earned the blessing of keeping the covenant, which is life. And he was given death for a time. So that our infirmities might be punished in him and so that we might have righteousness and so that God might be just and righteous in declaring us and Abram righteous. Abram believed God and he credited it to him as righteous because the work of God extended backwards in time as much as it extends in forward in time for us. The work of Jesus on the cross extends backwards. So we've seen Abram's complaint. We've seen God's response. And we've seen Abram's belief. 
When we pray to God, we, we had our pastoral prayer here, and each of us hopefully prays when we're at home, bringing our requests, bringing our petitions with thanksgiving to Him so that we might be given peace, is what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4. What's our attitude in prayer? If you're anything like me, I want, dear Lord, I'm anxious, I'm anxiety. Thank you so much for what it is that's making me anxious and anxiety. I want peace now. Peace now. Peace, Lord. Peace now? Now. Peace now. Does it always work that way? No. And what we have a tendency to do is we think that God's delay is God's denial. God's delay is not God's denial. God's delay is just a delay. And we have a tendency in the midst of that delay as fallen sinful human beings to to grab onto a thing called despair or what Dr. Lloyd-Jones called spiritual depression. Now, first thing we need to do when we deal with this, first thing we need to take away from today is to understand that spiritual depression is a real thing in the life of the Christian. Now, I'm not talking clinical depression, although the two are linked very much together. I'm talking about this, this sense of, oh, woe is me whenever God doesn't answer our prayers when and how we think He should. This sense of, oh God, You've promised all these things for me, and yet I don't see it. And it makes me sad. It gets me down. It makes me wonder, are You God? Now, this, this reality can come from several different places. Sometimes it can come after... Uh, a, a mountaintop experience. If you've ever gone to a conference, a couple years ago, I went to a conference called Together for the Gospel. And you get about seven or 8,000 men in an auditorium worshiping God through song. It is an awesome thing. And man, I came home from that just empowered for God and ready to worship. And then life happens. And you wonder, Lord, I had the mountaintop experience. Why, <laughs> Why the valleys now? And sometimes it comes from perceiving that God is delaying and is filling His promise. But whatever it is, we need to admit that it's a real thing. And the second thing is we need to realize that there are dangers to it. Disappointment and delay can lead to despair. And if we don't work to combat this spiritual depression at its onset, the enemy can use it to drag us away from God to drag us away from the, the peace and the power and the promise of living in God's life, living in God's world and in His promises. So how do we protect ourselves against this, this depression, this despair? Well, the first thing is we need to sometimes do what Abraham did. What did God tell Abraham to do when he despaired over uh, the lack of children? Go take a walk. Go look at creation. And don't just look at it, consider it. I have a friend who, who proclaims himself an atheist except. He says, every time I look at a tree and a forest, and I consider that the animals need the tree, the tree needs the animals. The fungus on the tree needs the tree, the tree needs the fungus. When I see how all of, all of this stuff outside works together, it makes me doubt my atheism. 
We walk outside all the time, do we not? We walk from our house to our car. We walk from our car to our job. We walk outside to carry the garbage down to the side of the road on Wednesdays or whatever day they come to pick up your garbage. Do you consider creation and the power of God who made that creation? The power that could sustain your promise, his promise to you? But we don't only look at God's book of nature, we also look at God's book of special revelation. We have to know that God. And yes, as Paul says, we can see his infinite power and his, and his majestic glory in creation. But to know the promises, we have to be in the word. We have to know who that God is so we know who to cry out to so that we know who to believe. Do you know who God is? Do you know what he's done for you? Do you know what he can do for you and how powerful he is? If not, get in the word. And if you're on the mountaintop right now, start now. This is the hardest place in our life to read Scripture and pray is when things are going really, really good. When we can see God's promises clicking along in our lives, and man, things are just going good. My children are obeying. My job's just going great. The sun's shining every day. Man, life is good. I don't need that stuff. But how many of you ever played sports or have kids who played sports? When's the best time to pick up the fundamentals? When the umpire says, play ball? Or in the four or five weeks leading up to the season starting? Why do you work on the fundamentals in the four or five weeks up to the season starting? Because when life gets difficult in the middle of the game, you don't have to think about it. It's just second nature. Why don't we act that way with scriptures? Why don't we act that way with prayer? Why don't we act that way with worship? Not just corporate worship here, but worship in our own lives. You know, when things are good is when we should really be digging into the Word, when we should really know the Word, when we should really be grabbing on to our God in prayer so that it's second nature to us when things go bad. As we leave, as we conclude today, remember that God's delays are not denials. It's His timing that He works out for His own glory in keeping His promises. Our job is to believe Him, to know Him, to trust Him, and he will declare us righteous. Let us pray. Our gracious and holy God, we do thank you for the words that we have from you. We thank you that we have the righteousness of Christ. Draw us to you in your word. Draw us to you in your world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.